Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at carmax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car that's why every car we sell is carmax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer so don't settle Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 590 with my guest, the very funny Adam Ferrara. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around our skulls. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist, um, but I've been to a lot of therapy and a lot of support groups. And I take meds. And I'm a nut job. I, th- I really think there nobody gets nut jobs like nut jobs. Before I forget, I want to remind you, if you're in the Minneapolis area or anywhere nearby, driving distance, uh, we're doing a live recording of the podcast on Friday, May 20th at 8 o'clock at Sisyphus Brewery. And I don't know why I opened the windows. The airport is 15 miles from me, and it sounds like it's in my backyard. But if I don't open the window, we sweat my balls off, and you want me comfortable when I'm doing the show, Right? So May 20th, 8 o'clock, it's a Friday, Sisyphus Brewing, and it, brew, is it brewery or brewing? I forget, I've been there like four times, but awesome place, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I will put the link to all the ticket info under the show notes for this episode, but uh, I will also put it under the announcements on our webpage, which is mentalpod.com. Let's dive into some surveys, huh? We fucked around long enough. Let's get down to it. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Hans Molman. For those of you that aren't Simpsons fans, that's the, the, the nearsighted guy. Fucking great character, too. Is there any show that has the variety of fantastic characters? I actually just got a pair of Simpsons underwear. And my girlfriend looked at me like, really? And I said, yes, really. Like, I love The Simpsons. I think my my favorite character might be the comics bookstore guy. He is just, oh my God, he so completely nails that 
that arrogant guy, that the arrogant attitude of somebody that just does not have their life together, but thinks they're better than everybody else. So this person asks, how do you recover from divorce? I'm finishing up a divorce from what I would consider an extreme narcissist who made the process incredibly tough on my mental health. I'm almost 30, back at home with my parents, and so worried about the future. I know for both my mental well-being and that of those who care about me that this is where I need to be, but when does this get better? feels like I'm staring down a dark void with no light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how hard I try, and it affects every aspect of my life. I've considered self-harm more recently and do see a therapist regularly. Um, well, I, and it, it, uh, He is a male, and um, a lot of people think that males don't self-harm, and you would be sorely wrong, sorely uh, mistaken, because males do struggle with self-harm. Um, that's awesome that you're seeing a therapist. Uh, I'm reticent to, to offer any advice because there's no one size fits all for people that are recovering from uh, uh, going through a divorce and the pain of it. Even if the divorce is something that is good in the long run, it's still fucking painful. And I, you know, I, I, I just had to to ride through the pain and. One of my close friends said to me uh, that every day it just gets a tiny bit better. And that helped me. And that's what I kind of clung on to. Um, so hang hang in there, man. And you're, I think you said you're 30. You're almost 30. So you got a lot of life ahead of you. Uh, unless that bus coming down the street is careening out of control, in which case, get cracking. But thank you for that. I'm trying. I'm a little bit sleepy, and so I am uh, drinking some green tea, even though it's dangerously late. It's like 10 p.m. here, and uh, I just I don't like when I sit down to record the podcast, and I feel like my brain isn't firing on on all cylinders. I, I'd settle for two cylinders. This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself the woman with the boobs. And uh, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? She writes, I'm ashamed of my breasts and butt. They're both large for my body frame and has been the topic of conversation since I was a kid. Adults would comment on my growing breasts and hips with approval and kids would tease me. As a result, I often felt uncomfortable with this attention growing up since I felt that I was being sexualized before I was ready. I have what is considered a very desirable body according to conventional standards of female attractiveness, so I end up feeling guilty for my thoughts, and the guilt compounds the shame. But I really dislike the way my breasts and ass seem to announce themselves to the world in my dealings with others. I know people think they are being complimentary or nice in their comments. (laughs) The airplane just wanted to get... It heard that this was an interesting survey, and they thought they'd fly by and see if they could. What the fuck? I opened the window, and all of a sudden, uh, I'm at O'Hare Airport. Uh, I know people think they're being complimentary or nice in their comments about my body, but it makes me uncomfortable, so much so that I wish I could lose enough weight to lose those body parts or just get rid of them in some way. 
I had a breast cancer scare a while back and started to fantasize about getting a double mastectomy. I know it's awful to say that since cancer is terrible, but that is how much I disliked my large breasts. I wear baggy clothes to hide my body in public and at home. Uh... But when I take my clothes off, the breasts and butt are still there. Sometimes I change clothes with my back turned away from any reflection, and I avoid the bathroom mirror when getting into the shower. If I'm able to admire these parts of me, it often is from a perspective of someone else who is not me. I actually feel extremely puzzled by what I see in the mirror and do not feel that my body is mine. I look at my naked breasts or butt and feel as if they do not even belong to me but to a stranger. I find it hard to look at my body naked and recognize that it is mine or a part of me. It's hard to explain in words, but it is often a disorienting experience. I wonder if that would fit under the category of body dysmorphia. Um, but this is the real reason. Uh, in addition to that, this is the part that that um, made me want to read this survey. Um, she writes, one thing that is both hurt and helped is getting pregnant. At first, my breasts grew rapidly from the pregnancy, and I was really distraught by this. But then I started to grow a bump in proportion to my breasts, and I actually feel more and more like my body is mine and belongs to me. I worried the pregnancy would send me into some body dysmorphic tailspin, but I've come to like what I see in the mirror. I even take my clothes off and admire my belly along with the rest of my body. I feel closer to my body now that I have this belly and a baby in there. It's been a really surprising experience. Thank you for that. And um, I just love that it your perspective has changed now and that you can see that your body has a purpose beyond other people's pleasure or gawking at you or whatever, whatever it is. I think for a lot of people who didn't feel that they had autonomy, even if it's just the way people look at us, um, it's, it's awesome when you can find something that reminds you that your body is yours. There's still so much ignorance, too, around what is an appropriate compliment and what isn't. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Oz, A-W-S. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? And he simply writes that I am destined for greatness. Would not have expected that from a listener to this, to this podcast. God bless you. And here comes another plane. I'm not shutting that fucking window. I am not going to boil, and I'm not going to turn on the air conditioning so you can suck it. If you're sitting here listening going, hey, that airplane's getting a little annoying, you know what? Fuck off. I cast you to hell. I, you know what? I cast you bo- beyond hell. There's a street right on the backside of hell. It's a little cooler than hell, but there is nothing to do there. So it's really, really warm. But it is like the inside of a fabric store. That would be hell to me. Eternity in a fabric store. This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself A. And she writes, The only thing I even partially like about my body is my hair, because it's long, blonde, and curly. 
However, I hate literally everything else about my body. I feel as if I am the fattest, ugliest, and most disgusting person in the world. The reason I wanted to read this is because the uh, national fattest, ugliest, most disgusting person in the world competition is coming up this weekend. A lot of you may not be aware of that. So, you can still not too late to enter. And who will, which country will win? Which country has the deepest pool of fattest, ugliest, most disgusting people in the world? Well, tune in on Friday and you'll find out. But uh, I, I have not, I've read hundreds of these, and I don't know if I've ever read one, a single one, where somebody didn't hate some part of their body. I've read some where people like a lot of things about themselves physically, but I don't know if I've ever read one where they love all of their body. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself French Manicure. And she writes, I have this voice in my head that berates myself for being lazy. I struggle with chronic depression and the voice doesn't help. I also hear that voice say things like, I have no ambition. I'm a loser and my dreams of becoming a writer will not happen because I can't handle the work it entails. I know this isn't true. In fact, All of my employers have said I was one of their hardest workers. Even my old therapist during our last session noted that I was a hard worker. On top of that, I know I can handle the discipline of writing. I have a PhD. You can't write a dissertation without being a hard worker. And yet, I have this voice come up almost every damn day saying that I'm a loser who can't really make my dreams happen because I'm lazy. I know it's my father's voice that I've internalized. He called me lazy throughout my childhood and said I had no ambition. He often made fun of my habit of procrastinating. My mom, too, would get in on the action by reading my diary and making fun of me for it later, thus making any future writing of mine fraught with this sense of shame and embarrassment. Well, the important thing is that your mom had boundaries. (laughs) Holy fuck. It's not bad enough that she read your diary. She then mocked you for what she read in your diary. That is fucking horrible. Oh my God. Uh, They treated my education as both a requirement, you must go to college, and a luxury, gee, must be nice to read books all day. (laughs) Oh my God. Your parents just have literally mentally and emotionally cornered you. My dad liked to call me a loser and an idiot if I complained, cried, or had trouble understanding my homework as a kid. So when I call myself names, it's his voice that I hear, and I have so much trouble shaking it off. I'm in my 30s, and I don't know how to get his voice and mean names out of my head. Well, if you find out how, please let the rest of us know. Thank you for that. And I'm so sorry you had to go through that. I mean, that is super, that is super fucked up. Um, this is from the same survey filled out by Ambivalent Phoenix. And uh, to the question, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? She writes, you were born broken. You are broken. You are damaged. There is no hope. You will never get better. 
Short and sweet. I love that the mean voice in your brain just gets right to the fucking point. It's not like, well, you know, there's some things about you that are good. Nope. You're done. You're over. Uh, same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sunny. She writes, uh, some of the things that you tell yourself about yourself that I am quite a good mom, a better one than I thought I would be. Putting my child's needs in front of my own came so much easier than I thought. Also, then I'm a bad wife, and having this child made me a worse partner to my husband who has a mental disorder. I can't support him the way that I did before, and I often expect too much from him. I make him feel really bad sometimes, and I hate myself for that. Thank you for sharing that. You got a little mixed voice there, huh? We are sponsored uh, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, Burnout is the subject of this month's uh, BetterHelp ads. And, you know, a lot of people think that uh, burnout can really only happen from work. But there's all different kinds of of burnout. There's helping burnout, which... uh, A lot of people don't even realize feeling like you have to be everything to everybody, being a people pleaser, uh, having an an oversized sense of responsibility. Um, It's it's exhausting if you're one of those people. And I I can be one of those people and the feeling that I get that comes up when I'm getting burned out is dread dread at just getting out of bed and so it's something that I work with my uh, my better help counselor Heidi and uh, she helps me a lot better help is customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to it's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours and you guys Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living? as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, uh, that dork from high school says about her ADD, I am single-handedly keeping post-its in business. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. 
I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like, we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. But the places you feel most broken now. You just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. We're rolling. You let me know what you need. Okay. I am here with Adam Ferrara, my new best friend. Uh, <laughs> Adam's a fellow stand-up comedian, and we've been aware of each other for yeah. decades. Yeah. And then we were on the same show together uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we started geeking out over the Beatles in, mm-hmm. the, in the green room. And, and I said to adam how have we not been best friends forever and now we are and now we are I'm, yeah i'm uh, we're recording in his place he's got the coolest studio it's it's uh he's got wall-to-wall uh pictures of of abbey road two two that one one picture is the front entrance to abbey road mm-hmm. and it takes up an entire wall of uh, his studio and the other is the mixing desk at Abbey Road number three, mm. and it takes up another wall, and then you got a bunch of car memorabilia. And um, for yeah. those of you that don't know Adam, he was the host of the American version of Top Gear. Speaking of cars, uh, you were on the series Rescue Me, and probably would you say most known for being Nurse Jackie's girlfriend, Edie Falco's uh, boyfriend on, um, uh, on yeah, Nurse Jackie? Yeah, it depends who you talk to. Like, I, right. the car guys know me from the car show. I guess so, yeah. And firemen and, you know, and then the uh, nurses I get. And But yeah, it's nice. It's Look, it's nice to even thinking about us, you know, yeah. and then there's the comedy people. Yeah. So. yeah. And we were just talking before we started recording, uh, fear of financial failure. Yes. You know, here I am. You live in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. Um, Could all go to shit, Paulie. <laughs> Hold me. Give me one of your pills, will you please? <laughs> so what What do you do when the voice of doom... Uh, you've, you've dealt with panic attacks. Yeah. Um, obviously, anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, ADD. Depression. The fact that you're a comic means your childhood was a treat. i will tell you this it wasn't outward uh, abuse or verbal abuse it was misunderstanding the intention of my family was not and i don't think anyone's intention is to hurt or to damage Mm -hmm. um but uh, everything was done out of love and and knowing that doesn't fucking help at all paul i wish it right i'm kidding (laughs) no knowing knowing that does bring me some brings me back to from the rage like, how could this... Everyone says, well, how does this happen to me? It happens. It happens. Everyone's got a bag of shit. Right. That should be that should be the sign when, when you're born. Welcome to Earth. Here's your bag of shit. <laughs> it's your job to deal with the shit or don't deal with your shit. Right. All right? But no one cares about your shit because they got their own shit. So. Right. Right. But my childhood, I took the characters of my mom and dad uh, because that's how I revered them. 
You were raised in Long Island. Raised in Long Island. Italian. uh, Passionate people. Passion meaning... Loud. No control, emotional control whatsoever. (laughs) And and, and fulfill my desires now. I think that's what the impression is on Long Island. Um, So there was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of... uh, not inappropriate uh, emotional response, but over-the-top emotional mm-hmm. response to stimulus and situations. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Any snapshots? Snapshots in my head or, or, no, or they, evidence they, they, at the trial? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just, I always like to ask uh, guests to, to paint uh, a little vignette from mm-hmm. the history of something that might be emblematic of uh, kind of the, the emotional temperature of the house or... Your inner life or your external I'll t- I'll life? I'll tell you one of the things, um, a coping mechanism. Well, I'll tell you this. You know, Pop, I'm not happy. My father looked at me once and listen, you ain't going to be happy every day. So, Which is kind of true. You're not going to be happy every day. So stop thinking that that's what you got to do. You got to get through the day. How do you make tomorrow better? And here's the other thing. It's like I would get nice advice from my father, mm-hmm. but it was always followed by a chore you know he so, would say he would i would say like you know I, I, there was an incident in school i'll give you a snapshot it was an incident in school where um there was a fight uh and i was making fun of somebody because i could i could verbally do that and i felt terrible and he said he goes you joined the friggin mob is what you did he goes you got caught up in emotion you did something you didn't want to do to be accepted by everybody else Sometimes a man's got to stand up for what he believes in, even if he's the only one in that room standing. You understand me? Yeah, pop. All right, now go take out the garbage. Yeah. <laughs> and as, and Paulie, as I got older, yeah. the, the, the situations got worse, and right. the, 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 the advice got short, the chores got longer. I said, pop, she's pregnant. I don't love her. I don't know what to do. Shit happens. Tar the roof. You know, it would be like... But there was... He always took the time to... Whether it was good advice or bad enough, he took the time to talk to me. Right. You know, he would discount the emotions because he didn't know how to deal with it. Right. So it got down to the, it was bottom line. What right. is it? And I recently found this quote that actually helped me. Uh, uh, understanding the question is half an answer, which is Socrates. My father was Joe Ferrara, but it was the same, right. it was the same right. thing. Right. You know, understand the question. Get through your emotions to figure out what is and deal with it but not that what that did what what that 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 uh map did for me was maybe discount the emotions Mm -hmm. and and not because you also could have used some comfort a lot of comfort yeah you know there wasn't a lot of that in the house but that generation no they weren't big on comfort no pop my hair's on fire it's gonna rain tomorrow rake the leaves you know just it it was and, and but one of the things about that was the the, the th- there was there was a, a quality of oh, I can do this, you know. My father would get through shoving down emotions and shit, but he would do things. He would do, he 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 built our house. He did kitchens and bathrooms. That's what he did. Right. And he was he wasn't go to school for it. He just learned it. My my grandfather was a plumber. He learned how to do this. He learned how to do this. He taught himself how to do this. He cut our driveway, Paul. We had a we lived on a corner. We had this big hill we lived on and uh he redid the whole house and he wanted a circular driveway there was a big fight in the house my father right. would my father, joe what the hell do you want that for i don't want to back up that was the reason <laughs> so i get off the school bus one day he's rented a bulldozer 
and he's cutting the driveway. He's on a bulldozer. He's got a lucky strike hanging out of his mouth. He's on a bulldozer, and he's cutting a circular driveway. I jumped on the bull. I go, Pop, how'd you learn to learn that? He goes, I never learned this. This is what we're doing today. Let's go. <laughs> so that kind of roll wow. up your sleeves and get to the bottom of shit, yeah. that work ethic is instilled in me. And I've, t I've taken that instruction, and I've tried to direct it towards my depression and my anxiety and get to the bottom of it. And it, ha it has served me well to not discount my emotions, but not to get wrapped up in it and lose sight of what I'm trying to do. To not know, tell... Knowing what the question is. To, to uh, not tell yourself that you are your story. Oh, that's good. That's, that's what I heard somebody say one time. That I am not my story. My right. story is a part of who I am. Yeah. But I'm the idiot telling it to me. <laughs> uh, talk about panic attacks. When did you first start experiencing? I don't recommend them, Gilmore. <laughs> I was in New York. Uh, I was doing stand-up, and I started getting a panic attack. I was in the wrong place. And I was uh, with the wrong people. And the escalation of that, I had to make a decision to either go in full force or not. And I didn't know that my body was going, don't fucking go there. <laughs> this ain't right. right. You know, and my body was doing everything to get my attention. This is the way I'm looking at it. But it was weird because your panic, you do, I didn't know what it was. It felt like my rib cage was coming out. I felt like my teeth were falling out. I don't know why. So I went to see, um, I went to see, a sh I went to this Park Avenue doctor on the recommendation of a friend of mine. And it was, I wish I was healthy enough to tell this lady to go to hell. I really did. She showed me a video of manic depression. I sat to watch the video and then I sat in her, her office and she goes, take these. And I go, but I watched the video. I don't have the manic phase. Take these. I don't have that phase. I'm just, I don't, I don't, I don't have the, the will to go on. I don't have the, I, I don't get the happy part. Just take these. Listen, I don't have what this medicine is supposed to do. How do I get the happy part? Maybe I'll take the bad part if I get the happy part. Mm -hmm. She was just pushing drugs. And I was, I went, I got it fulfilled because I was not in a state of, of knowing any better. Mm -hmm. I'm taking this shit. You know who saved me? Who helped me? The pharmacist. Really? Crazy Jerry. We named him Crazy Jerry. He lived across. I was living. I still got the apartment in New York, and it was it was the pharmacist right there. And I would go in. She gave me another prescription. She gave me all kinds of stuff, and I made the guy laugh. He, he I think he knew. He kind of knew. He knew I was a comic, and uh, I, uh, I think he was a Rescue Me fan, but he didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Anyway, so he's looking at this stuff, and he's like, "Hey, man, do you smoke?" I go, "Yeah," because I was smoking that. He goes, "He goes, can I buy him a cigarette?" I go, yeah. He goes, all right, meet me in the alley. So I went to the alley. We buy the dumpster. We light a cigarette. Is there a way this could be more New York? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you guys had met on a pizza, that is about the only way this could be more New York. Well, I know because when he crossed the street, a cab came up and he was like, we're walking here. <laughs> so we're in the alley. We're having a cigarette. Uh, and I noticed he's got cigarettes in his pocket. He goes, I got cigarettes. He goes, you got cigarettes in your pocket. He goes, yeah, I got to talk to you. You know what the fuck you're taking? He goes, these are antipsychotics. I go, I, I, I don't know what that is. He goes, what's wrong with you? You know, and we'll have a cigarette talking to this guy. And he's like, I said, I, I don't know. I got these pressure. I'm getting these panic attacks. I don't know what it is. He goes, he goes, do you like to relax? I go, what? He goes, what do you do to relax? I said, I don't know. He goes, you like music? I go, yeah. He goes, all right, meet me here tomorrow. I came back tomorrow. He handed me a hard drive. 
I go, what's this? He goes, friend of mine worked for Sony. He downloaded this. You didn't get it from me. Just listen to the fucking music. Calm down. Come back and see me in a couple of days. He goes, stop taking this shit. Guy didn't know me. It was like an angel sent from... Guy had no, no connection to me. Took the time. Wow. How nice is that? Do you remember what music was on it? Uh, there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, there was uh, a lot of 60s and 70s stuff, mm -hmm. which was right in my wheelhouse. Because I like album rock. I like... Uh, it starts for me around freewheeling Dylan, although I'm not a big mm -hmm. Dylan fan. I miss that. It, he's not really talking to me. And it ends with like Thriller, Michael Jackson, but all gotcha. that, you know, mm -hmm. the English rock and the English invasion and stuff and Crosby, Stills and Zeppelin, all that stuff. So there was a lot of that on there. And there was some great Aretha Franklin. Oh, there was a song I took from that hard drive. Um, you ever hear Aretha Franklin do Bridge Over Troubled Water? Mm -hmm. Oh, son. Yeah. Oh, baby. That, that, that's, that's my everything going to be all right song. Have you seen the, the movie of her singing in the church? Oh, the, the documentary they released yes. after they found out what she, no, I heard about it. It's on, it's, it's on a really list. Good. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And that, her fucking dad was creepy. Yeah. 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 I didn't. Creepy. I, didn't, I think, uh, uh, Ritz wrote a book, um, the res book Respect. I think it's him. Mm -hmm. Uh, he did, uh, I know he did Joe Perry's book, which was pretty good. So mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, um. And so did that the music did you it, stop taking the i stopped taking it only because i wasn't functioning and then i went to see another doctor and they're like ah oh, yeah stop this and then they they, they zoloft they gave me that and that didn't really work the only thing they gave me the xanax the xanax at the end of the day you know where's, where's daddy's pill right <laughs> you know? right which is not a great long-term solution no for not a great long term but if i made it to five o'clock and my work was done i could oh okay yeah but I was in the wrong place, and I was, and my friend Phil, uh, who's on my show with me, um, helped me out a great deal by just saying, "You are in the wrong place. Get in the cab." Because I was, I was renting a room. I left the apartment I was living in, and I was renting this room above the Cuban embassy. It was this weird. I was living in some guy's house, and I was giving him money. And he I, sold Italian ties, and I made him laugh. I have boxes of silk Italian ties. He goes, take them. Go ahead, take them. You're funny, man. Okay. So I was on. I was smoking. I was smoking like a dock fire. I was just on yeah. all day out smoking. Um, and my friend Phil says, get in a cab. Go down there. Make make a decision. Tell these people. Tell, tell, tell her your decision. You're done. That's it. And it worked. It worked. It worked to a sense where it, tell the psychiatrist. No, I tell I I, I I was in a relationship I shouldn't have been in. I gotcha. So and uh, I made it definitive. And there's a once you put your stake in the ground and make a choice, then that the relief of that mm -hmm. is gone. But then the work starts. But there was enough of it to give me a, a foothold into. All right, this is what I got to know. And a lot of it comes back to not being liked when we were talking before about codependency and disappointing people mm -hmm. and uh, um, feeling you're not good enough. And then that turns in on yourself, it's self anger. And then, you know, everything gets out of control. What do you feel like uh, developing your sense of humor served you as a, as a kid? What, what kind of, it gave me, it gave me a sense of how to fit in because my father was very mechanical, like I said before. And that's why I love cars. My father could fix anything. He didn't even need the tools. He could make the tools to fix the shit, you know? Mm -hmm. He made our entire house with a butter knife. I don't know how the <laughs> hell he did it. 
And then you had toast. And then we had toast, yeah. So I always gravitated to cars, and I didn't have the if-then-go-to statement. Right. You know, I know how they work. I just can't fix them. You know, my job was to hold the light poorly. I'm, right. You know. Um, so it, it, in answer to your question, humor, when my dad came home from work, he was always stressed out. And that's where I get my fear of not being able to provide mm. and, and to look for something to aggravate myself so I could be aggravated to assume the role of the man of the house, if that makes any mm. sense. Yeah, so, it does. So the machine is looking for something to piss me off so I could be pissed off to, to fulfill what I think the man of the house should be. So I couldn't do what he wanted to do. So I, when I made him laugh, it went away. His face went away. The aggravation melted and he got this big smile. Paul, my father was, my father was Gleason. He had a laugh that would just fill up the room. And when you got that laugh, it made other people laugh. So, and when I realized I could do it, I'm like, oh, that's how I can fit in. That was your first drug. Yeah, that was the first drug. That's how I can fit in. And I knew when I started doing stand-up, I went to the open mic and I got it. I knew I belonged here. I also knew I'm not going to laugh anymore because I'm going to look at it critically on how to do mm -hmm. it. And yeah. that scared me, but I did it anyway. And then I learned how to laugh. How'd you, how'd you learn how to laugh? I learned how to laugh by realizing I got to enjoy it first to figure out how it works. I got to feel what the effect is so I know what I'm going for. What did you find yourself battling in trying to let go enough to enjoy it? Outcome. I was battling the fear of not being funny, the fear of failure. Which is why you felt compelled to study it. Yeah, to give myself the false sense of control and illusion that I'm, I'm putting in the work. So eventually, if I put in the work, this will happen. It's not true. You got to put in the work because this is what you want to do. The outcome's out of your control. You're entitled to your work. You're not entitled to the fruits of your labor. Yeah, it's such a conundrum. It's like, how do you take your comedy seriously, but not take yourself seriously? You drink. And That's how you do it. <laughs> well, then I I succeeded for the first uh, 15 years of my stand-up. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think it's not connecting your identity to the outcome. I was just going to say. Yeah. It, and that's really hard. We are, in many ways, our own product when we put ourselves out there yeah. as performers or, or artists. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to not feel personally rejected if, if we're not somebody's cup of tea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I, I will tell you what advanced that understanding for me. You were graciously enough to was a, were a guest on my podcast. Mm. And my podcast isn't just me. It's me, my wife, and my two friends. You know, I'm steering the ship, and I'm, I'm getting the guests. And basically, my show, uh, if I may, is it's the best night's sleeps I ever had, Paul, was when I was a kid. I was upstairs. I felt my mom and dad, I heard them downstairs with their friends laughing and helping each other with their problems. And it was always, you know, it was an Entenmann's cake. There was, mm -hmm. there was a little, put a little whiskey in a coffee. You'd be fine. You mm -hmm. know, it was a sense of community. So I would hear them laughing. That's the feeling I wanted to communicate with my show. So my show opens up with me, my wife, uh, my producer, my best friend, talking about a topic that connects to a one-on-one -on -one interview I've done with a celebrity or somebody really cool, yeah. right? And then like any good group of friends, we talk about them when they leave. <laughs> so then after the interview, we do another 15 minutes. Did you hear when Paul Gilmartin said this? That reminds me of yeah. this. And it's like you're coming over my house. Yeah. In doing that and having those, the people I love be part of it, I realized I, I can't um, freeze up. I, I'm I, I felt responsibility for their emotional well-being if someone didn't like the show. 
And I realized that's not what it is. And I had to communicate to them. I go, look, you know, another guy's a comic, but the other two, my wife's a civilian. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, uh, my other buddy, Mark, is a, uh, he's a radio producer. So I had to communicate to them, like, look, this is a product we're putting out. This is not, you know, this is us, but it's not us. Right. So having to, to communicate that to them helped me in some way. Were they? Because I had to put my own bullshit aside to care for the people I love. Being of service, I found. Was it in anticipation that they were going to take any critiques personally? Once you put yourself out, yes. Once you put yourself out there, you're open to it. Right. You know, you're open to this is what happened. How people can react to it any way they want, given their the filter of how they see shit. You know, whether it's accurate or not, it could get back to you, and you will have a a, a reaction to it. So what are the what are the battles today that you uh, find trusting myself? It's trusting trusting in the again separating from outcome, doing what I want to be doing, realizing when I'm doing something, it's okay to put myself into it. I don't have to worry about the future because I feel like I can't provide. What am I doing? I got to, You know, mm-hmm. you're here now. Do this now. The best you can do this. How you do one thing is how you do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just got to keep keep that focus. You know that that monkey mind that runs mm-hmm. to fear is the thing you have to, you have to control. And, and it's tr- My wife is, you know, pillar of strength, beautiful woman. She's I'm batting over my head, Paulie. And I know she loves me because there's no money. I mean, there's money, but there's no, I'll stay still for this. Cause we have a villa. There's no villa. money. <laughs> but she, she told me, cause you don't trust yourself. He goes, you got to trust not in your talent, your ability. You got to trust everything and do it, and then the outcome will support itself. Yeah, and look how far you've come. Yeah, you've, it's, you've, you've thrived. It's still scary, for decades, it, it, but it's still scary, Paulie. Here's the, and, and and here's one thing that I that I do. We were talking about how the ego and mm-hmm. how we need to fool ourselves with the illusion of control. I took that statement of faith, which is what my wife said, but she's got more faith than me. I took that statement of faith, and I figured, well, what does that mean? So now I'm looking for shit like. A scientific reason or anything so i found i forget i think it was hawkins i was reading some hawkins he goes nature will support itself if you are part of nature and the creative energy the system is designed to support i'm like wow nature's going to support itself which means i need to be a plant you know i don't <laughs> but if you're connected to that energy whatever it is i agree I that could, source energy i couldn't agree more um one of the things that i like to remember when i find myself holding on too tight mm-hmm. is listen something created the universe yeah there is some guiding force in the universe where where, where love comes from where mm-hmm. community comes from i don't know where the source of that energy is but i think of that as the architect and my job is to be the bricklayer to not guess as to second guess you know the blueprints to just go how can i be the best brick layer that i can yeah and then step back and go wow look at this beautiful thing that i got to be a part of. a part of yeah i what helped helped me again and it's all understanding and illusion of control maybe but it's understanding is um you know n- n- knowing what, what what the question is but knowing how to how to how to work with the energy i changed the word from change because change to me has a negative connotation there's something wrong i got to change mm-hmm. there's an urgency to it to evolve Look, shit evolves. <laughs> the seasons right. happen every year. Yeah, the you universe know, is expanding. It's good. This is what it's got. It, it's natural evolution. Is the evolution? Be part of that energy. 
Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you got to swim out to catch the wave. You got to swim out to catch the wave and then ride the wave in, but you don't have to swim out again. Yeah. So look at the the points in your life is um um this phase, this phase, this phase. The transition to get to that phase is is painful. It is. You know, change is painful. Uh, look and at It's scary. I hate yeah. the unknown. Do you really think the friggin' inchworm knows it's going to be a butterfly one day? He's like, "Oh shit, I got 10 legs and they all fucking hurt." You know? <laughs> I, I didn't even know the inchworm was what became the... Uh, oh, is that the caterpillar? Caterpillar, yeah. Okay. Wait, is it inchworm? Yeah, caterpillar, yeah. So, I'm a child. So, <laughs> inchworm, inchworm. So, are there any moments when your need or desire to control really were ugly or backfired on you? Or you look back and yeah. you're like, wow, that that was not a enlightened moment but, yeah. but you look back in it and you're like oh, i can see that i've grown since then i've been fortunate enough not to have the expression of that anger manifest in the way i saw it manifest like i never hit anybody well, i saw a lot when i was a kid you know that's just the way you in solve your, shit. in your house no no not okay. the, i mean i you know i got I, my father hit me a lot not my brother so much he hit me a lot he's like well i guess that's wrong thanks i'm glad i could help yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the test monkey. Like, are we talking open hand slap? Yeah, he, he, we, we we never went rounds. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. two out of three falls. You know, he kicked me in the ass once outside of Mister D's Pizza. I flew right over the caddy. He just I wasn't where I was supposed to be. Boom! Kicked me in the ass. I went right up over the hood. That's uh, brutal. Uh, I I did stick the landing. What? <laughs> just jokes aside. Yeah, that's brutal. Yeah. But it only happened once. He was remorseful. My mother made him apologize. Never happened. Ha- never happened again. But the idea that it happened, he never had to do it again. You know, because I was just—I knew I was more scared of my father than the outcome of what was going to happen or the bullies or any any of it. You know, I was more scared of that. So that kind of kept me in line. It's not. It's it it it's a harness, <laughs> you know, um, but it's uh, I'll give you an example. My father had this this gravitas. He had this. He was a crime boss. My father. He's not the guy that kills you. He's the guy that nods his head and people die. Does that make sense? And you're talking figuratively. Yeah, I'm talking figuratively. So I remember once I had to, I was at baseball practice, and my father drove home. To, I had to be on the corner of the field. The sliding door was going to open, jump in the truck, sit on a dual box, close the door and go home. I got to be there. He goes, I don't want to stop. I'm going to slow down. <laughs> wow. So I ran middle of practice. I heard the truck because it was a hole in the muffler. <laughs> got to go. Ran. I just, the coach is yelling at me. He goes, where you going? Got to go. <laughs> that was more important for me to get there. I got there. I got in the truck. My father drove around and he had to go past, you know, with the coach. The coach was standing in the street and stopped and goes, well, he goes, he just ran out to be in the car. He goes, because that's what he's supposed to do. My father's got a lucky strike in his mouth. He's talking yeah. to me. He goes, that's what he's supposed to do. He goes, well, I need to talk to him. He goes, what do you got to say to him? Well, he needs to stay. He goes, he's not going to stay. He goes, he goes, he goes, what do you want to do? The coach couldn't, couldn't process this. He's like, well, he can't just leave like that. I go, he did. He's going to do it again next week. If I, I would suggest you get used to it. And he drove away. Wow. The conversation was over. He drove away. And guess what? What? Coach never opened his mouth again. 
gotta go. What was your dad like with your mom? He yelled. This and you know what? My mother. My mother was tough, but my mother was my mother was his queen. He put her on a path. He told me when I was a kid. He goes, "You want to live like a king? You treat your wife like a queen. You build your kingdom together." He would say that to me, but he would yell a lot at her. He would yell in general, mm-hmm. and then in her, you know, he would yell at her. It wasn't abusive yelling. It was just loud. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he wasn't insulting. It wasn't demeaning, but it wasn't as loving as it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't wasn't aware that I took this behavior on until I got married. My wife went, uh, you're not your father, and I'm not your mother. And I went, fuck. Like, last night it even happened. What happened? She was upstairs listening to something, you know, loud kids singing or something it's like they have that commercial cars for kids oh man i am never doting in a car right now just just yes. those those that the song goes through my head like a nail i'll give you the money i'll give you the money to stop the commercial but i'm yeah. not so that kind of mm-hmm. and i just instead of saying can you please lower that i'm down here going you're killing me honey you're just killing me and she That's- came down the stairs and she goes would you like me to lower the television and i went yeah so it's stuff like that. It wasn't abuse, but it wasn't, again, as loving as it could be. Um, but when my mother, I, I'll tell you an incident when I was a kid, my father pissed off my girlfriend. I forget what the hell happened, Paul, but it was prom or something, and there was supposed to be a party. My mother wanted to throw a party before the prom, but then this this girl's house, and we wanted to go there. It was, it was a punk. I was a teenager. I, know. I hurt my mother's feelings. I didn't mean to do it. Uh, and my mother said something about my girlfriend at the time, and I got I yelled, and my father came down, scary as hell, because he didn't raise his voice. I was in the garage, and he goes, "She, he goes, he goes, you know, I got, I got def- you know, I, she, 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 she said something about my girlfriend." He's like, "And you yelled at your mother?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, "So now you're yelling at my girlfriend?" And I shit myself. <laughs> he goes, "How do you expect me to respond with someone yelling at my girlfriend?" And I went, I get it. I get it. So a lot of lessons I learned in life were fear-based. Mm-hmm. You know. What are some of the lessons that were instilled in you that you have had to unwind? Mm. Uh, clearly, you know, yelling to yeah. express yourself. Yeah, yelling to express myself. I have to unwind that. Um unsolicited advice to take control of a situation oh that's a good one yeah that is a good one especially when it comes to our partners thinking that if we can teach them or change them Mm -hmm. then we'll both be better off and the the reason it's so difficult paul is i'm right all right paul (laughs) i'm right and the quicker you realize that the the better off our relationship is going to be god so awful yeah so awful and seems so real in that moment Mm-hmm. It seems so real. And we forget how it feels to be the person who's being quote unquote tutored. Yeah. The biggest, the, the quickest way to build resentment is to parent an adult. You know, so it's that one way contract. It's like, you know, it, it's part of like, after all I've done for you, or I'm doing this because I love you. Like, right. I know you didn't ask because you can't, that, that's what makes this a beautiful gesture on my part. <laughs> What 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 else are uh, the reoccurring patterns or struggles that as you doom, evolve a, a doom cycle? Oh, I love 
sweet, sweet doom. Oh yeah, the doom cycle. Yeah, the the, the it's all over. I'm a, I don't sleep well. It's better now because I found I actually found a different therapist now, which was really cool. And that's helped with your sleep. Well, here's what happens: I would I fall asleep for an hour, and then I wake up, and then the game of staring at the clock, and it's all coming to. It, it, it's it's always Sunday night. My homework's not done, and the school bus is coming. <laughs> That's such a fucking great metaphor. Yeah, analogy, whatever you want to call I've it. Lived I, like, I still don't know what the. I always I, get those confused. I don't know. You say anise. Yes. Um. There should be a word for people that misuse analogy and metaphor. They do it. It's it's called Paul Gilmartin. That's the word. <laughs> no, it's. I know. I I know what you're trying to say. I, I don't know the simile metaphor. I have no idea what it is. Yeah. But that's the feeling, Paul. That's the, you know that ah ah, panic uh, doom. Panic doom. It's all. It's worse. And it's and I I would wake up in the morning. I I call it walking through the haunted house. I got to get out of bed. I got to walk through the haunted house. As soon as like the second cup of coffee, caffeine kicks in. I'm like ah okay. There's some vitality. <laughs> so, are you getting up at the crack of dawn when you can't sleep, or uh, middle well, of the night? Yeah, it's, it's middle. I can't. It's, I'm rolling back and forth, rolling back and forth, rolling back, and, forth, and then I'll fall asleep a half hour before I'm supposed to get up. And then I'm like, hate that. "Fuck!" So, but what helped me with the new shrink was dealing with what I'm dealing with was finding, you know, a triggering incident or something from your childhood mm-hmm. that oh, I blamed myself. And that's what this is. So I'm sleeping better now. So I know I'm on the right track. It was funny. I had um, Anthony Edwards on my show. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, has a, uh, and please excuse me. I forgot the name of his, uh, uh, of his, his charity and outreach program, but it's about uh, males, uh, children who were abused. It was, he was sexually abused uh, mm-hmm. in the Hollywood system. And I asked him on the show, I said, how come the victims blame themselves? I don't understand that. He's like the kids. They're coming through. It's a sense of trust. The betrayal of trust is so much they can't figure out why. Mm-hmm. So they blame themselves. And then that's that's the code that everything runs on from yep. that point. And you, and you learn to stop listening to your intuition because mm-hmm. you always assume not only was I wrong, I am wrong. Yeah. And you start beating the shit out of yourself. You know. So that helped me a great deal just in understanding why and then going to the new shrink going back into your, your childhood and stuff and okay bah, 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 bah. oh oh okay and there's no great relief when you realize it there's illumination mm-hmm. but then you just see the work you got to do you know it's like someone turned the lights on like this place is a fucking mess <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel you're functioning today? You know, we all have this idealized version of mm-hmm. ourselves that we will probably never reach. Right. I, if you start calling me emperor. That's a start. That's a start. That, that, that I'm halfway to my goal. I got one guy. Yeah. <laughs> now I just need the rest of society to address me He just me needs emperor. to spread the word. I feel, um, I feel now I know what the what the battle is and the battle is to stay present and to enjoy what i'm doing you know like you, you came over today you did my show before this i did i'm doing your show now mm-hmm. we're in my little studio here i was i was eager to to, to see you it's a, a new friend we have a yeah. common interest i was like i i want i i i like what you're doing i was like i got a play date 
I'm going to enjoy this. I felt the exact same way. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to enjoy this. And I'm yeah. taking the time. To, I'm, not, I'm out of my head going, I got to edit this interview because I got to go to that premiere tomorrow night. And I got mm -hmm. to get my hair cut. I'm like, oh, who's this fat bastard in my mirror? You know, <laughs> rather than doing all that shit, right. which is stuff I got to do the rest of the week. Right. I'm enjoying my time with you and realizing I'm allowed to enjoy this time. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing this. Isn't a means to an end. I'm having a conversation with someone I, I really want to get to know. Even though I'm going to make something out of it for all my show, and you're going to make something out of it for your show, so I'm. Uh, in answer to your question, I think that's where I'm at now, recognizing the opportunities I have to enjoy myself, yeah, and not beat the shit out of myself. It didn't occur to me until about maybe ten years ago that I had been mistaking negative self-talk mm -hmm. for discipline. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, I got worry is not responsibility. I got that one helped me. Yeah. Yeah, negative self-talk for discipline. That's, yeah. Yeah, and... That, that, uh, yeah, cause that, that guy lives in my head, too. Yeah. What is your major malfunction, <laughs> numbnuts? <laughs> yeah, right. that's kind of nice. Nobody has ever shamed themselves into being the person they want to be, and yet that seems to be our go-to mm -hmm. if we think we're not doing enough, or we don't have enough, or we're not enough. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a a shame-based reality yeah and you you in talking to you before you said you were more fear-based mm -hmm. can you what's the difference because i got both i think um i think fear is, uh, uh, shame is taking the fear mm -hmm. and making it personal okay that's good you know by denigrating who i am as opposed to just recognizing, because I think we're, we all have some baseline level of fear, and the way for me to deal with fear is to say, is this a rational fear or is this an irrational fear? One of the right. things I've worked with my therapist on is cognitive dissonance and yeah. saying, what are the facts on the ground? Okay, well, telling myself that I'm going to be destitute uh what are the facts on the ground? The facts on the ground right now are I'm able to support myself. I have a nice life. Mm. Uh, it, it's not an issue. So let's just go with the facts on the ground okay. for now. Shaming myself would be, well, I haven't done my to-do list perfectly for the last two years. Mm. Uh, I'm fucking lazy. I will be destitute. So it's listening to the lie. and turning it around and making it personal okay, rather than so fear the fear is there the fear the, shame, the fear will be there regardless and the shame is the way we process it yeah is believing it is believing it and then blaming ourselves for something that hasn't even happened mm. or if something did happen that i'm shaming myself for you know what i will ask myself is is there an apology due mm. to somebody? If there is, I make it. And if it if it if there isn't, because I'm making too big of a deal of it, then I just say, hmm, have other people on the on the planet made minor mistakes that you know, mm. where they said something that uh, you know wasn't it, necessarily hurtful, but might have been mildly inappropriate, mm -hmm. or uh, you know. It's usually when I'm afraid that I'm not enough, that I'll try to be the big shot and make yeah. some big joke and it lands badly and I and I maybe look stupid. I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but I look desperate. I look needy. Yeah. 
I got that. And then I just will go, okay, yeah, wasn't my finest moment. Didn't hurt anybody. Fucking let it go. Yeah. Okay, so shame is the internal um, blame for fear or internal process of fear. Yeah. What, what, I can shame myself for anything. I can too. Hold on. I got to write a note. Please, to do, forgive the Catholic Church. It's my fault. <laughs> yeah, I was blaming everybody. I was, you know. And, and 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 you know what else I was doing when I would I would try to make my art form stand up be a cure and a healing place and it was I I stopped for you personally for or the me audience personally yeah. and I was like I can't do this this is not I was on stage listening to stuff I go what the fuck are you yelling at this guy this this couple got a sitter <laughs> they, they made a choice to come see me live and i'm bitching about my problems that's not art that's just bitching you know elvis costello said you you just can't take your diary and put music to it make it art. so you gotta mm -hmm. you can use it as raw material but there's a responsibility to it's not group therapy the yeah it's not fucking therapy it's just make it laugh i was like i was talking to a buddy of mine the other night another comic he was on he was yelling he goes, I can't help it. I'm angry. I said, you want to be angry? You want to be funny? It ain't an anger club. It's a comedy club. You want to be fucking angry? Sit in the audience. You want to be funny? You get on stage. You know. And he asked for my opinion, Paul. I didn't just yes, say that. That's awesome. But That's awesome. There are a few people that can make anger funny, but I I'm think- I'm not one of them. Here's but, what, here's what yes. I found out. Frustration is funny on me. Anger's not. Anger is- Oh, that's a great- differentiation because like one of my favorite uh uh comedians is bill burr i don't mm -hmm. always agree with everything that he says but i love how he pushes boundaries and he finds truths in things that um aren't necessarily politically correct mm -hmm. uh but he does it I know Bill personally, yeah. and he is somebody who has a very high baseline level of frustration, and his frustration on stage is organic, yeah. and that's one of the things that draws me into it, and it's not just unfiltered rage. It's not manufactured, yeah. and so I enjoy that frustration. Well, yeah, it's, it's authenticity. That, that's, yes. Here's the thing about the audience. They can smell it. They're not going to laugh because it ain't true. Right. It's not. That's the ultimate lie detector. And test he's aware audience. of his frustration and 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 anger. Yeah. Which, I th I think is also important because I think you and I have both seen comedians where we're like that person just needs therapy. Yeah. It's not. It's not an art form. Right. You're just bitching and moaning. I can right. get. I can get that in my parents' house. Right. You know. <laughs> uh, the name of uh, Adam's podcast is the Adam Ferrara Podcast. How'd you come up with that name? Ah, you know, born into it, you know. <laughs> it was handed down. Yeah, it was the same energy, I think, that, that named Lou Gehrig's disease. <laughs> uh, buddy, I love talking to you and... Uh, Enjoyed it, my friend. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me on your, and, uh, your and podcast. And a nice, a nice uh, uh, inspiring journey you were on. So thank you for doing yeah, this. Right back at you. Yeah. Um, what are Adam is a huge fan of li listening to books on tape, especially yes. in the in the self help the realm. Stuff. He doesn't just listen to Beatles stuff. Mm -hmm. Give me top three self help books that you would recommend. Top three. So depending on on where you are, uh, my meditation teacher Dean Slider, Natural Meditation. Uh, that kind of clarified everything for me, and there wasn't a lot of 
Indian words I couldn't pronounce. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyone who's interested in getting into it, the way the book is designed is there's a chapter on the on the, the philosophical uh, uh, point of something, and then the practice is the next chapter, and it just builds from there. So it's a nice guide. So I would recommend that. Uh, we were talking about Eckhart Tolle, mm-hmm. The New Earth. I thought that I love was, that book. That was a really good book. Yeah. Um, and uh, cutting through spiritual materialism, I thought was good. Because it just it, it illuminated to me how the ego still worms its way in yeah. to manufacture the illusion of control, mm-hmm. and when you you know so th- those are the three right off the bat. Great, and Willie Moscone, uh, winning pockets <laughs> billiards was one of the first books. Do you I remember uh, a comedian? Um, oh God, Dave, I forget his last name. He was an Indianapolis comic, and he's, mm-hmm. he said, uh, uh, yeah, I'm really good at pool. Maybe you've uh, read my book. Uh, it's called uh, What Am I, Stripes? <laughs> <laughs> Dave I, Dugan. Dave, Dave Dugan. Dugan. I actually, uh, you know, he taught me I got really good at pool playing with Rogan. Yeah. Because I used to play with Joe when uh, I was on a show on UPN. That's how far we're going back. And he was on the baseball show before news radio. And the Hollywood Athletic Club, we would meet at the end of rep. I think he was at Sunset Gower, and we mm-hmm. would just go up there and shoot pool. And uh, yeah, and he's really good. Is he? He gave my pool cue. I got a Richard Black pool cue he gave me. I think I traded him for a desk chair because I had an old Godfather chair. Mm-hmm. And I was moving to New York, and I think he wanted the chair. So he gave me uh, a pool cue. It was got a metal joint, ivory ferrule. Really nice. No idea what any of that it's, stuff uh, means. It's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, thanks so much, buddy. Good to see you, baby. I love making new friends. It's funny, you know, he and I were aware of each other for decades, but our paths never crossed. Uh, And I'm glad they did. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Body Shame Survey filled out by Just Cut It Away. And she writes, What I like about my body... My smile, my hair, my eyes, my legs, my arms, my lips, my eyebrows, my butt. What I don't like, my post-children belly. So obviously I hate everything about myself based on that one part of my body that I can't seem to change no matter the activity levels. Marathon runner, five to seven times per week at the gym. And no matter my nutrition, I've gone from orthorexic to anorexic and everywhere in between and back again. I pull men in with my good looks, my humor, and charm. They get me naked, we have sex, and I don't hear from them again. Makes me want to harm myself. I don't, but it's the most hurtful thing they can do to me. You know, I 
as I was reading your survey, I was thinking, what are there criteria, the men that you decide to, to, to sleep with? Is there a point in your relationship that you get into bed with them? Does it happen right away? Um, and I'm just wondering if you put off the having with sex with them until you got a sense of their personality. You know, my friend Mickey has a saying that the first six months of a relationship, you're not meeting each other, you're meeting each other's representatives. And I'm just wondering if you held off on having sex with that person, you might find that you don't even like that person and then you don't have to go through having the fantasy popped of who that person might have been. Because a lot of times, you know, if, if, if it's over after a one-night stand and we wanted more, we never get to find out that that person might have been a fucking pain in the ass to be around. But... Excuse me? <clears throat> this is where I choke. But if we have multiple dates with them and take our time, then... I think we're going to have fewer. Jesus Christ. I think we're going to have fewer of those episodes where we build up this idea of the person that didn't call us back. And then I think there's less pain that there's less fucking. So it's a trade off. I don't know. All of a sudden, I'm feeling like all of my thoughts and opinions are stupid. And I'm not speaking right, and I'm too slow, and my coughing is rude, and the airplanes are distracting, and I'm no good at this, and everybody's going to leave me. (laughs) That's what I've been battling since I turned the mic on 65 minutes ago. That is what is going through my head. And this is the kind of shit I talk about in my support groups, but a lot of times... You know, I'll, I'll I'll talk about it on the podcast. I'll get honest about it, but sometimes I'll just fight through it. I'll be like, that. you know, that's the perfectionist in you. That's the mean voice in your head. Or even if that is true, it's okay. It's okay. If somebody thinks this, this was a shit episode and the previous one was a shit episode and they're done with it, that's not going to kill me. It'll just slowly make me poor until I throw myself off a bridge. This is an email I got, Uh, and it says, Good day. I came across your email contact prior to a private search while in need of your assistance. I am Aisha al-Qaddafi, the only biological daughter of former president of Libya, Colonel Mumar al-Qaddafi. Wow. I am a single mother and a widow with three children. Wow. First of all, I want to say I am... So sorry that you are a widower, but it's awesome that you still have your father, President Gaddafi, around. I have investment funds worth $27,500,000, and I needed a trusted investment manager partner because of my current refugee status. However, I am interested in you for your investment project assistance in your country, 
Maybe from there we can build business relationship in the nearest future. Well, I went on my iCalendar. I'm a, I'm a Mac guy. And I clicked on nearest future. And it turns out there is no nearest future setting. You would think if they have a thing that you can click on that says nearest future, well, nearest future would come up. Apparently, it's a glitch in the system. So I don't know what I've got scheduled for my nearest future. What I do have, if you click on an, on iCal, is furthest future. And I clicked on that, and it said pile of dust and bones. So I think it goes a little too far out into my calendar. But I've got some stuff to think about. She writes, I'm willing to negotiate an investment business profit-sharing ratio with you based on the future investment earning profits. Those are a lot of big words in there, and I'm not sure what you're saying because it sounds like you're saying you're going to determine a ratio to start off with, but it's going to be based on what it earns in the future, which makes me think I'm going to need a time machine. And the problem is, my accountant, who's going to need to be with me on this, he's a woozy traveler, and he gets he gets time machine sick. So I might just have to go in the time machine by myself and just plow into the nearest future. And I got to tell you, I'm a little nervous. So I might have to take a Dramamine. I might have to take a Valium. But I'm excited that I might get a chance to meet President Muammar Gaddafi because i got to assume who's, he's doing great these days. If you are willing to handle this project on my behalf, kindly reply urgently to enable me provide you more information about the investment funds. Your urgent reply will be appreciated. Best regards, Mrs. Aisha Al-Qaddafi. Oh, that's interesting. Widow still calling herself Mrs., you know what? Fuck you. That's the deal breaker. This is from the Body Shame Survey. Filled out by a guy who calls himself Gary. What do you dislike or like about your body? Everything other than my eyes, smile, and legs. As a plus-sized man, I struggle to find clothing in general, let alone fashionable clothing. I found that dressing more fashionable and true to myself gives me a great deal of confidence. The only issue is those items don't tend to be commonly in my size. With a large beer belly-like stomach, love handles, what would be considered by my middle school bullies as bitch tits, uh, all of it. The fact that I can look at myself in the mirror naked and see how strong my legs are and then look up and see flab and softness in my torso and chest hurts so bad especially as someone who works out and lifts weights and my upper body gets stronger but doesn't change in appearance hurts so damn bad. It makes me feel like all of my work is for nothing. Well, thank you for sharing that, Gary. And uh, I, buddy, I relate. It, it, my lower body looks like it's on a different human being than my upper body. And my girlfriend, God bless her, tells me she loves all of it. And I tell her that she has low standards, and then I throw hot coffee in her face. And that's why we've been together for three years. And why she wears a hood. 
This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Girl Under the Bell Jar. She identifies, and she only filled this out partially. Uh, she identifies as asexual. She's 20. Um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My father was my abuser. He was, as a child, abused physically, verbally, and I believe sexually, though he had never admitted it. This led to him becoming all sorts of fucked up. He had depression, bipolar disorder, paranoid schizophrenia, and who knows what else. My memories of the sexual abuse didn't surface until my parents divorced and he was out of my life. Most of the memories are vague and seem to lead up to or decline from the actual moment of abuse. I don't think about it anymore for the most part, maybe due in part to my family's reaction. They had noticed my fears surrounding my new stepfather and pressured me into talking about things I wasn't ready to talk about. Apparently, they weren't ready to hear it anyway. They told me I must be mistaken and that it was all in my head. Uh, she is not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, My father shared his conspiracy theories with me as I was growing up, which I think might count towards emotional abuse, one of which I remember in t- particular was that the rapture was soon coming. He said Christians would die of starvation, disease, and torture. Those who would survive would be the ones who relinquished their belief in Christ and were to be damned in hell in the afterlife. After this, I made a plan to kill my sister and I as soon as the rapture started so we wouldn't have to suffer. Wow. I'm not picturing a lot of laughter in your house. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I do not remember anything besides the abuse. My extended family has said that he was a devoted father. I believe he loved me. I believe his mental illness made him the sick bastard he is. Darkest thoughts. I'm asexual, but I think about having sex with my English professor. Typically, I don't get turned on, but I look up to her, and the idea of having emotional intimacy with her gets me off. These thoughts are only occasional. I don't long for an intimate relationship, but I masturbate to these thoughts. I wouldn't ever share this because so many people already question me on being asexual. If anyone knew, my sexuality would be in question, and I despise being told I need a man in my life. It makes me feel entirely degraded. Um... Darkest Secrets, I'm too ashamed to say, even in an anonymous survey. If I were to ever to type, type it out or say it out loud, it would become a truth I could no longer pretend wasn't true. Well, thank you for filling that out. And, you know, um, I say fuck anybody that, that wants to box in or label your sexuality. You know, well, I thought you told me that you were... Fuck off. We fuck who we fuck, we love who we love, and uh, does it matter what it's called? So, I and I, I can't, I don't even know why that would be a deepest, or a darkest thought. That's such a human, beautiful fantasy that you have. Having sex with somebody that you look up to. That's sweet. This is a happy moment filled out by Do You Know the Muffin Man? You know what? I know him a little, but I'm not comfortable saying that we're friends. 
I always say, you know, the Muffin Man and I were acquaintances, and that fe- that feels more appropriate. Because I would never say, I don't know the Muffin Man. Everybody knows the Muffin Man a little bit. But then again, I mean, philosophically, does anybody really know the Muffin Man? I mean, really, what's inside? Share one or two of your happy moments. I visited my sisters last week without visiting my abusive, alcoholic, and narcissistic parents. This was the first time I worked up the courage to go see family without seeing my parents. I live in a different country than my family, so this was no small trip. Usually I feel obligated to visit my parents when I go back home, but after another visit last year that ended in tears, I decided I was done. In fact, every visit to my parents has ended in tears since 2014 as their active addictions and untreated mental illnesses get worse. When I told my parents last year that I couldn't do this anymore, they guilt-tripped me and started arguing with me about how I was wrong and that they weren't drinking, that I was too sensitive and heartless. Bizarre reasoning, I know. How could I be both? That they were both sober now, so I no longer needed to worry that next year will be different, blah, blah, blah. This is the pattern with each visit, and last year I snapped and decided I was done participating in the same runaround bullshit. Although I felt a lot of guilt leading up to the visit, it was actually really enjoyable. It was great to see my siblings without my parents dominating the room. I had fun catching up with my sisters and talking about subjects beyond, oh no, what is mom or dad doing or saying now? I was able to spend quality time with their families without feeling like a fight might might break out at any moment. I felt calm and happy to be there instead of anxious and angry. Most importantly, I didn't need to decompress or debrief after the trip because it didn't put me in a depressive funk afterwards. We even had time to go out and do something in the world. We went to restaurants and parks. We hiked. We went swimming. We shopped. All of those activities would have been off the table if my parents were invited, as they usually need to be near their home to drink and rarely get their act together to show up in a public place. It was glorious. It felt like an actual vacation. Imagine a family trip that is fun instead of a chore. I just can't believe how smooth the whole trip went, and I'm happy that I was able to see my sisters in a calmer, more peaceful state because my parents' drama wasn't dictating our itineraries. It's gotten to the point where all of us adult kids have had enough with our parents' abuse, and now we are a united front. It's been an affirming and validating experience for me. Even though these are sad circumstances and I feel bad for my parents' troubles, I'm also so incredibly grateful to have siblings who feel the same way that I do about our parents' abuse. I feel like that's rare in dysfunctional families, to have all the adult children be on the same page at the same time and actually agree with each other on how bad it is. So even though these are difficult issues to deal with and work through, I'm grateful to move towards change with them instead of doing it alone. I love that. I just love that. I love every fucking thing about that. And yeah, it is rare when somebody cuts ties with the parents to have everybody on board and supporting. You know, when I cut ties with my mom, my my brother was uh, thankfully, and since then, has been totally supportive, has never, never questioned me, never tried to shame me, um, 
None of it. And that is a fucking relief. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, Am I Anxious Enough? I'm not sure. Let me read your survey. She's in her 20s, identifies as straight, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, Never been sexually abused, but she's been emotionally abused. Uh, My father continues to suffer from extreme anxiety and anger. My mother is possibly clinically depressed. Their emotional abuse was a byproduct of their own struggles. They diminished my emotions, manipulated me into behaving according to their conservative Christian ideals, and relied on me to provide emotional stability. It was my duty as their child to remain emotionally neutral. I was spanked, but not violently. I was body shamed from a young girl. My my parents consistently manipulated me to become more religious and controlled what activities I was allowed to participate in. The worst part was the volatility of my dad's anger. It became my life mission to avoid and de-escalate his outbursts. He was always angry over the stupidest shit dishwashers sitting full 15 minutes after finishing a cycle, curtains left open, popcorn being eaten in my bedroom, all random and unpredictable. I've spent a lot of time healing from this environment as it essentially stifled my ability to develop into an individual. My existence was for someone else for so long. I didn't know what I preferred or how to exist without feeling responsible for someone else's well-being, emotional well-being. Uh, any positive experiences with the abusers. Both my parents love me very much. They've shown their support for me when it comes to my professional success, but I think this is mostly due to my success being an extension of their success as parents. I love them and recognize their own struggle and personal demons. However, it's difficult to act on that love when I know they are so unstable. They do not respect my boundaries and cannot love me as a whole person because so much of who I am today is a divergence from what they want from me and their religious conservative perspectives. Darkest thoughts. I want to be sexually active. I'm still religious and can't shake this conflicting desire of following my faith and acknowledging my sexual self. I've been so repressed sexually that I only started masturbating in my late 20s. My deepest, darkest secret that I can't can't act on is to be intimate with someone. I can't do it. I shut down emotionally and convince myself that it's not possible. I've never let someone in, and interestingly, I'm afraid to let anyone touch me. Family members can hug me, but allowing a partner to touch me feels like assault. Even if I want it mentally, it feels wrong. What a strange contradiction. Darkest Secrets. I guess that I'm scared that I can't ever change and will end up alone. I've convinced myself I don't need people and this has caused strain on many relationships when someone wanted more and I couldn't offer it. I've hurt people and pushed them away. Well, you know, that is understandable. Given where you were raised and the eggshells you had to tread on, um, I mean, fuck, it's got to be terrifying being intimate with somebody you know there's this amazing article by um uh god i'm blanking on his name right now uh dr alan rapaport and it's called co-narcissism and it is about the ripples of growing up 
being raised by uh, a narcissistic parent or two narcissistic parents. And um, one of the things that he talks about is that we we grow up with black and white thinking. Something is all good or it's all bad. And we also believe that the world views us the same way that our narcissistic parent viewed us. And so, you know, just walking out our front door is, you know, walking through a, a landmine. So the idea of sharing our life and sharing that, you know, the most vulnerable parts of ourself with another person. Uh, yeah, it's got to be terrifying. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I want to be with a partner that feels overwhelmed by my ability to please him. Uh, I, want to, I want sex to take on a significant part of my life and be a means of exploring who I am. I want to lose the mystery and gain a deep understanding of another person by sharing... Uh, in their most personal life moments. I know, pretty edgy stuff. I feel slightly more hopeful even just writing this down. You sound like a really, really sweet soul, and um, I think it's totally doable what you want. I really do. I really do, but I don't think it's, it's, and again, I'm not a mental health professional, but I don't think it's feasible just doing it on your own. I think you need support. I think you need a community of people, you know, kind of kind of training wheels for being vulnerable. That's that's what I needed to learn how to be vulnerable. I had to do it in my support groups before I could do it in a romantic relationship, and it took years. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my parents that loving being a parent is the not is not the same thing as loving your child. My parents loved the idea of their child. They did not love the cracks and crevices of who I was, the ugly warts and the cutting sarcasm. That was who I was. They praised me for my high achievements and said nothing of my failures. They critiqued my appearance and judged my ideas even as a young child. They decided what my needs were and chose to love the parts of me they saw as good enough. I would want to say that it wasn't good enough, and parenting is about respect and acceptance. I'd also say thank you. I'm not sure which sentence would be the hardest to say. Wow. That was like a little poem. Wow. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, with my therapist and my sister. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better, hopeful, human. Man. That is just a beautiful survey. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Bipolar Nightmare. He identifies as gay. He is in his 30s. He was raised in, a, he says, a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, he writes, I was... He says some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I just assume that people know that, but sometimes I, I just just occurred to me that a somebody who's new to the podcast might hear this and go, well, how dare you classify that as you don't know if it counts. That person should, well, just another fear rattling around in my head about me making a mistake and everybody 
turning their backs on me. Um, I was about four or five, and I remember sitting in the back seat of this pale blue VW Beetle, and my mom and, and in parentheses, aunt, uh, in the front seats. Somehow the conversation turned to French kissing, and then suddenly my aunt was kissing me and telling me to touch my tongue to hers. I will never forget how gross her tongue felt and how confused and ashamed I was for kissing her. I don't know why my mom allowed this to happen. This same, quote, aunt molested me and my younger brother in the bathtub. Whenever I am intimate with someone now, I have to fight myself not to scrunch up my face and wince like I'm about to be punched because even though consensual sex feels amazing, it also makes my skin crawl in fear. Rough sex makes me feel alive. Walking the line between pleasure, pain, and fear is both terrible and amazing at the same time. After my dad married stepmom number one, one time she found a little bit of poop in the toilet that wasn't flushed. This psycho bitch then made me and my brother go into the bathroom and show her our anuses so she could inspect for poop and determine who had forgotten to flush the toilet. Her older son and friend were there, and they laughed at us. Uh, He says he's never been physically abused, but he's been emotionally abused. After catching my mom cheating on stepdad number one, he chased me, my brother, and mom up a hill into the forest with a knife. We hid for hours in the dark woods, afraid he would kill us. Stepdad number one and my mom would fight constantly. There was always loud yelling and screaming, dishes flung across the room, and locked doors kicked in. One time, stepdad number one cut the spark plug wires out of my mom's car and held a knife to her throat as she screamed at me to get the neighbors and call the cops. Jesus Christ. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Stepdad number one taught me how to rope cows, shoot guns, and ride horses. I loved him and wanted to call him dad, but we left him to stay at the battered women's shelter and I never saw him again. Darkest thoughts. I think about my darling partner dying all the time. I imagine terrible accidents and how the cops would come to tell me the news. I fear I will bring these things into existence by thinking them and that I won't care if it actually happens. Darkest secrets. When I was 14, I showed my toddler brother my penis. I don't know why I did that. I am so ashamed and disgusted with myself for doing that. I've never done anything like that again. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I fantasize about being the receiver in a gang fuck situation where countless men use my body and then leave, leave with me never having seen their faces. You got you to gotta enjoy a nice gang fuck situation, right? You know, perimeter of cops, a couple of them on horseback just in case things get out of control because you never know. You never know when a gang fuck's going to go downhill because it's a gang fuck. I mean, sure, there are some people out there that have tidy, polite gang fucks. There are also people out there who've had messy, unpredictable gang fucks. So I guess what I'm trying to say is all gang fucks aren't alike. And what we need to do is bring our humanity to our gang fucks. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Stepdad one, I fucking hate you. I got to say, I fucking hate your stepdad. Stepdad one. I hate your stepdad number one so much, I hate stepdad number two. And I don't even know anything about him. That's what a dick your stepdad one sounds like. Stepmom number one, what the fuck is wrong with you? Mom, grow the fuck up. Dad, you're a fucking coward who sold me out to appease your awful fucking wife. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want a family. I want kids of my own that I can fill with love and happiness. I want to create a home that is stable and accepting and loving. Have you shared these things with others? My partner doesn't want kids, and I desperately do. I put my dreams on hold because I am too scared to cause him any pain. It's too much for me to deal with. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better, actually. I've never told anyone about the abuse. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are enough. You deserve love and affection for no other reason than you are you, and that is more than enough. This doesn't have to end in suicide. You are strong enough to keep going. Keep creating. Your music, photos, and woodworking projects are the essence of you. You are not lost. I love you. Wow, dude. Thank you for that. That was a beautiful, beautiful survey. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by an agender person who calls themselves something clever and witty that will encourage Paul to read this on air so I can feel validated. That, how does that fit on your driver's license? Tell me. Uh, and they write, I've been struggling with self-harm after a recent relapse. I was clean for over a year until last Sunday. I tried to keep my relapse to myself, but this, surprise, surprise, made things much worse. I finally told my girlfriend what I was dealing with, and she was incredibly non-judgmental. After telling her without feeling like a freak, I felt encouraged and did some searching for a support group I could join. I found a self-injury recovery anonymous chapter that meets online and nervously sat through the first meeting. When it came my turn to speak, I immediately started crying and my voice wobbled. I was so embarrassed and apologized, but was able to explain my situation. The person who spoke after me said that this is not a place to be perfect, that it is the best place to cry, and that they were happy to see me. I was amazed and relieved to find a space where I can let go of my usual stoicism and perfectionism. I can't wait for the next meeting. The same night as the meeting, I decided to take myself dancing. I've never gone to a club, much less by myself, but I've always wanted to try it. So, bolstered by the meeting, I hyped myself up enough to take the train to the nearest LGBT-friendly club. It was a weeknight, so there were only a handful of people there, and I was nervous about looking stupid. But when I looked around me, I realized everyone looks at least a little bit stupid when they dance, and no one there knew me, so there'd be no real witnesses if I looked stupid too. I slowly got into it. It was 80s night. The DJ put on my favorite Tears for Fears song, and I forgot for a second how I looked and just felt how good it is to move. My normally racing thoughts were drowned out by the noise and the laser lights made everything dreamy. I was totally in my body, dancing purely for the feel of it, alone at a club 
and doing just fine. I didn't even have anything to drink. This would be good enough as is, but after about an hour of dancing, a lesbian couple tapped me on the shoulder and told me that they'd been watching me dance and that I had great footwork. I was so surprised and thrilled. I thanked them, danced a little more, took the last train home, and slept like a baby. Ugh. I've said it a thousand times before, but I feel so privileged to get to read about your guys' lives, especially your inner lives, especially the things that you've never shared aloud or typed them out or even formed a sentence in your brain that you feel safe enough in this podcast community to go to the website and fill that out and hit and hit send that just it just blows me away it just blows me away and it actually helps calm down that mean voice in my brain because i mean let's be honest the survey part of this show is really a parade of mean inner voices just letting loose And it just, it, it, I feel less alone. Maybe that's why I say it to you guys at the end of the episode. Maybe I should say, never forget, I'm not alone. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And let's just say we're not alone. How's that? You, me, Gracie, that guy I tossed to the backside of hell. I'll, I'll let him come back. Nah, no. Let's leave him there. Gracie says odd, by the way. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.